Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Have you been following the January 6th committee hearings? They started Thursday night in primetime when more than 20 million people tuned in on TV, around the same number of people who watch big televised events like Sunday night football. The hearings continued Monday morning, focusing on Donald Trump's big lie, the lie that the 2020 presidential election was stolen. We'll tell the story of how Donald Trump lost an election and knew he lost an election and as a result of his loss, decided to wage an attack on our democracy. One of the standout moments came when former Attorney General Bill Barr explained that Trump believed certain voting machines had been rigged, despite there being no evidence. I was somewhat demoralized because I thought, boy, if he really believes this stuff, he's become detached from reality. Day two was a little different than expected. Former Trump campaign chief Bill Stepien was supposed to be a key witness, but he had to cancel after his wife went into labor before the hearing. Now that's a good excuse. Robert Pape, who's University of Chicago political science professor, and Tom Mikaitis, DePaul University historian, broke down day two for us. The uh, first witness called was former Fox News political editor Chris Steyerwalt. Democrat Zoe Lofgren of California asked him about a so-called red mirage. Could you explain what a red mirage is? I think this is a phenomenon we've seen, you know, many uh, over many years now that for whatever reason that I'm not, maybe Bob can answer this more than me, Republicans tend to vote more frequently in person while Democrats make greater use of mail-in ballots. Now, this may have something to do with their work schedules or family circumstances, whatever. But what it creates is, is an unnatural uh, blip um, or an inaccurate blip early in the evening where, as the, as the actual tally votes are counted first, the ones cast on the day of, you see, you know, an over-reporting or a reporting of the Republican candidate being far ahead. And then as the night progresses, um, you will see the right, they will move to the, the mail-in ballots. I meant to say mail-in, not write-in. The mail-in ballots, the absentee ballots, and so on. And that number will correct, which is why there isn't a rush on the part of the of the uh, networks to proclaim anybody the winner. Well, you know, in this case, however, what uh, Rudy Giuliani apparently advised the president, as did some others, that he should just go to the microphone, declare he won, and demand that the vote counting stop because they knew perfectly well that the mail and the mail-in votes would in fact um, favor the Democrats just based on statistical analysis and again that is in my field um, and as a result you know try to say you know they did the same thing he wanted the same thing done with Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania Trump said oh just go and claim victory because you're ahead unfortunately mm-hmm. democracy doesn't work that way if they're allowed to do that we've got really serious problems yeah anything to add Robert uh, I think Tom has it just right. Uh, the big thing that happened today was not the discussion of the Red Mirage, but the national review of the lack of evidence of voter fraud. Uh, we knew before today's hearing that uh, over 60 cases um, had failed uh, to find fraud. Well, we didn't know the details. We didn't know how much Trump's inner circle 
was investigating and looking for that evidence, including Barr's, uh, Barr and his deputies. And that is what the real news is today. Today is the, is the first time we've had a true national review of the evidence of voter fraud in the 2020 election. And now we can all see the details of why the courts throughout all those cases. Yeah. Well, in his response, Chris Steyerwalt explained that this happens in nearly every presidential election, the the red mirage. Let's listen. So in every election, and certainly a national election, you expect to see the Republican with a lead, but it's not really a lead. Um, When you put together a jigsaw puzzle, it doesn't matter which piece you put in first, it ends up with the same image. So for us, who cares? Uh, But that's because no candidate had ever tried to avail themselves of this quirk in the election counting system. We had gone to pains, uh, and I'm proud of the pains we went to, to make sure that we were informing viewers that this was going to happen because the Trump uh, campaign and the president had made it clear that they were going to try to exploit this anomaly. Tom, your impression of his response? Yeah, it, um, it, it is undeniably clear. What I kept finding myself asking as this unfolded is, are we talking about a man um, who developed a big lie as a calculated, cynical strategy to overturn the election? Or are we talking about somebody who's delusional, who genuinely believes this? And then I don't know what that does to proving conspiracy. I think the one thing to me that I would add to Bob's excellent summary of what we learned today is that how much money Trump made over this. And I think the thing to me that I thought was a bit of a, you know, a, a very revealing moment was when they said people were being told this money is going to be used to challenge the results of the election, but instead it went into a political action committee for the president. That really seems like willful deception. Now, I'm not a lawyer. I can't say that. But if that's the case, it really does seem to support the argument that he knew and what he was fomenting was, in fact, a lie. And, and commentators have said throughout that from the very opening, particularly by Liz Cheney, it seemed this sounds like a prosecutor laying out a case for indictment. Uh, you know, and then that I think is interesting as well. Yeah. Well, uh, since Bill Stepien, who's Trump's campaign chief, wasn't able to join today's hearing, the committee did pivot and showed a video of taped testimony. The committee questioned Stepien about what he told Trump to expect from early votes and how that might shift throughout the night. What do you make of what Stepien had to say there, Tom? Well, I think, you know, it, it seems pretty clear that everybody around the president was telling him, look, this is over. There's nothing you can do. You're going to lose this election. You should concede and everything else. And what any of us would do, much as we'd get over being disappointed, we might grasp at straws for a little bit. We do what Mitt Romney did in 2012. He just looked at everybody very sadly and said, it's not going to happen, is it? And he moved on. In this case, what what Donald Trump apparently did was just call in people who supported what he wished to hear. And that would be the pattern all the way down to January 6th. And I feel like, you know, Bob and I both know we were on uh, WBEZ right after the election, warning everybody that something like January 6th would probably happen. Um, You know, I wish we had been wrong, but, but I think that's the reality. Yeah. And uh, and Robert, you know, as you, you mentioned, um, you know, this isn't the big news right now, uh, but we will get into some more specifics of, of the evidence that was presented this morning shortly. Well, 
Well, um, well, go ahead. Sorry. What I, what I think is imp- yeah, what I think is important to understand is that as Liz Cheney explained last Thursday, the committee's goal is to prove that Trump intended to overthrow the government. Well, as part of the case to prove that Trump intended to overthrow the government, it's crucial that the committee prove that Trump knew he had no evidence, no corroborated evidence that he won. Otherwise, he's not overthrowing the government, you see. So today is a crucial step in the committee's evidence that Donald Trump intended to overthrow the government. So it is, uh, it may seem to the public that we're reviewing some old ground and so forth. It's important to understand the committee's target for this evidence is the Department of Justice. They're not trying to win in the court of public opinion. They're trying to prove a legal case Mm -hmm. that Donald Trump intended to overthrow the government. And it's crucial then to prove that he knew he had no evidence that he won. To that end, in a taped deposition, former U.S. Attorney General William Barr expressed that uh, voter fraud claims from Trump were concerning. Let's hear a bit of that. And the statements were made very uh, uh, conclusory, like, you know, this, these machines were designed to you know, engage in fraud or something to that effect. But I didn't see any supporting information for it. And I was somewhat demoralized because I thought, boy, if he really believes this stuff, he has, you know, lost contact with uh, with uh, he, he's become detached from reality. So this is Barr's first public denouncement of Trump. Uh, In fact, earlier this year, he said that he would vote for Trump again. So what do you make of this turn, Robert? Well, this is devastating for uh, Trump because, again, going back to the legal case, the committee intends to show that Trump intended to overthrow the government. This means when Trump is putting pressure on Pence to reject um, the, uh, the the slates of electors on January 6th, he has no basis in evidence to believe he actually won. And therefore, it's the uh, his intent is to overthrow the government, while Barr is showing the details of the extent to which Trump's own uh, Department of Justice looked into these and then reports directly to Trump that there is no there there. This means this is devastating here. And the Department of Justice is going to have to take this very seriously. This is the first real evidence uh, along the along the train that Trump intended to overthrow the government. Now, uh, the committee called three witnesses on a panel to respond to allegations brought before courts of voter fraud. They were uh, Benjamin Ginsburg, a Republican election lawyer, uh, former U.S. attorney B. Young J. Pock, and Al Schmidt, a former Philadelphia city commissioner. So, Tom, what did we learn from them, and what do you make of their testimonies? Well, this lends, you know, incredible credibility uh, to what the panel's saying, because these were not, you know, this, these were not liberal-leaning lawyers brought in to support an ideological position. I mean, one had been involved in the, you know, the the Supreme Court case, Gore v. Bush, 
that ended up helping to decide the 2000 election. So you could hardly accuse him of somehow being leaning left. But all of them said, you know, how in some that these lawsuits ranged from, you know, very minor, almost trivial to to almost frivolous. You know, and again, I stress I'm not a lawyer legal expert um, in terms of assessing that. But I think the thing was is that it was clear that, in fact, in some cases, these these suits were met with the door with a decision. Just to add to what, what Bob said, I think he, he's absolutely right about aiming at the Justice Department. But I think the emotional impact, and I've been immersed in the details of this from the get-go, and mm-hmm. I still find it incredibly powerful to see all of this laid out together in such a compelling and, I think as Bob said, damning sort of way. Here's a clip from B.J. Pock responding to claims about suitcases full of ballots. But in actuality, in review of the entire uh, video, uh, it showed that that was actually an official ballot box that would kept underneath the, the tables. And then they, we saw them pack up because the announcement that they thought they were done for the night. And then once the announcement was made that you should continue counting, they brought the ballot pack back out and they continued to count. Now, here's Al Schmidt responding to Giuliani's claims that 8,000 dead people voted in Philadelphia. Not only was there not evidence of 8,000 dead voters voting in Pennsylvania, there wasn't evidence of eight. We took seriously every case that was referred to us, no matter how fantastical, no matter how absurd, and took every one of those seriously, including these. What are your thoughts, Robert? Well, these are three or four specific cases that the committee goes in in detail to refute the evidence. And they're not just cases that are kind of picked out of the air. If we would go back and read and look at Donald Trump's speech on January 6th, he went through state after state. And these are some of the key allegations that he said in front of the crowd proved that there was voter fraud. And what the committee is doing is they are setting this up so that what they're doing is showing that before January 6th, Donald Trump knew that there was no evidence supporting these allegations so that when he goes to actually say these on January 6th, this is showing his intent to overthrow the government in detail because they will connect up to the January 6th speech. So this is, uh, it's, you know, riveting television, of course, but for the legal case, this is really devastating for Trump. The only thing I have to raise, though, Bob, is when you say he knew, I think at some point he really has gone over the edge and convinced himself that these lies are the truth because we're living in a world for a large section of the electorate the truth is not what's objectifiably variable, uh, verifiable, but what the leader says truth is. Now, that's the definition of fascism. But I, I found myself scratching my head back and forth throughout this whole thing. Does he really, he sounds like he genuinely believed the lies and was impervious to any decision. And he explained away every court decision as being somehow not fair. And I don't know. Does he does he believe this or is he really just playing a very clever and cynical game? Yeah. Well, since it formed, this January 6th committee has had trouble getting Republican lawmakers to cooperate. The the committee resorted to, to issuing subpoenas for five GOP lawmakers in the House of Representatives. Tom, can you just explain the historic nature of these subpoenas? 
Well, of course. I mean, I, I'm not aware of a case in which that has happened in the past where they've literally subpoenaed members of their own right. of their own body. But what I think is really telling here is the comment Liz Cheney made uh, in uh, on uh, you know when the on the on the primetime televised hearing, the first one, that she named one individual and said there were several others who sought a pardon from President Trump. You know, you know, to because of what happened on January sixth, that that's I think to me a bit of a of a bombshell because it really suggests that um, they had implicated themselves to a degree which was criminal. Um, why else would you ask for a pardon? And uh, one of the individuals who she named said, "No, no, that isn't true." And they, she came back. They came back and said, "We have evidence." Mm-hmm. And I think that's why they're not wanting to testify is that they really would be put on the hot seat and have to answer some very, very tough questions. So, Robert, can we take the committee seriously? Like, does it have teeth? It has tremendous teeth because it is providing the evidence. The committee's teeth is the evidence that it is providing for the Department of Justice to bring a criminal case against Donald Trump um, for uh, inciting a insurrection to overturn the government of the United States. This is uh, an amazing thing that we are watching in front of us that's unfolding, uh, because what we're seeing is not um, a trial unfolding. We're not seeing prosecutor and defense. What we're seeing is the evidence here uh, for the prosecution being developed by a committee. Mm -hmm. And that is incredibly uh, compelling. And it's going to put tremendous pressure on the Department of Justice here in the fall to bring criminal charges against uh, a former president. Now, that itself is going to become a political uh, bombshell. But this is going to be extremely difficult to duck that once this evidence, if if the committee continues at this pace, it will be virtually impossible for the Department of Justice to avoid bringing those charges. We've been speaking with Robert Pate, professor of political science at the University of Chicago, and DePaul University historian Tom McKaitis. Thank you both for your time. As the January 6th hearings continue, we are hearing a lot about the big lie. But how many Republican voters in Illinois still believe that the election was stolen? Well, a new Chicago Sun-Times WBEZ poll finds more than two-thirds of likely Republican voters in Illinois think Trump actually won the 2020 race. WBEZ state politics reporter Dave McKinney has the details. So we're curious about these surprise findings, Dave. What was the uh, main takeaway? Well, it seems like the Illinois Republican primary voter in general is still very enamored with Donald Trump. I mean, you know, we, we've been watching this morning and, and last week these hearings that the January 6th committee has been having. Mm-hmm. And, and while the poll was taken ahead of that, the allegations we've known for a while, but they haven't had any kind of bearing uh, or impact on primary voters here. And what we found was that, you know, more than two thirds of the state's GOP voters thought that Trump actually won the election in 2020. So think about that. Wow. I mean, this information surrounding that false narrative that Trump has put out about the election has actually sunk in with a, a large percentage of, of voters here in Illinois on the Republican side. 18% thought that Joe Biden actually won, and another 15% were unsure. So, I mean, again, more proof of that. And nearly 9 out of 10 people still like the, the you know, the combative uh, yeah. former president and 
They want him to run. Two-thirds want him to run again in 2024. Dave, where exactly are these people? Like, where in Illinois is this support coming from? Well, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, of course, downstate, which historically is, is a much brighter red color, uh, more Republican uh, density down there than, than what we typically see in Chicago and the collar counties. But it was also in the collar counties, too. Uh, those number, both, both regions, uh, held, you know, among Republican primary voters in both regions, still a high, high number of support for Donald Trump there. Why does he seem to have a hold on, on Illinois Republican voters? Well, I mean, I don't know. It's it's sort of one of those things where uh, a lot of people are getting their news from, you know, certain sources. And, and you know, what they're hearing maybe on, on a network like Fox News is really kind of percolating or, you know, there, there are other places as well. But, but these they have bought hook, line and sinker, this pro-Trump narrative of, of a stolen election and you know the the sense of aggrievement he 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 has he has sold this to them and it's almost sort of like he he's on the apprentice again and, and able to kind of you know uh, put the spell on people the way he did with that television show and high ratings i mean mm-hmm. it's that the same kind of principle you know so when uh, the survey was conducted how many people would you say participated altogether well, I mean, the, the the group that did this is out of North Carolina called Public Policy Polling, and they they surveyed uh, using landlines and text messages about 700, a little under 700 uh, people across the state of Illinois uh, last Monday and Tuesday. And uh, this firm, Public Policy Polling, I mean, they they have uh, a bit of a Democratic leaning to them, but at the same time, uh, if you go to the the website 538. Uh, they're, they're, they're ranked among some of the best polling firms in the country. They're graded about an A minus. And mm-hmm. I think the number I saw in them was, you know, they call about 80 percent of the races accurately. So they're a good pollster. You actually spoke with an analyst with the pollster that conducted this survey. I wonder what he made of the findings. Well, you know, for those people who have been paying attention to the, to the Trump endorsements, I mean, he's been quite active in different primaries around the country. And, you know, his batting average, it's kind of middling, I would say. I mean, uh, he, he, uh, he, he missed in Idaho. He missed in Nebraska. Uh, you, you know, the, this uh, congressman in North Carolina, Madison Cawthorn, he was for him. And so, you know, even though he's been missing on, on some of these endorsements he's making, what the analyst told me from, from the pollster was that, you know, the, the, the findings that we have here in Illinois, as tr- is true across the country, Donald Trump you know, can do no wrong. I mean, even even if he's swinging and missing and picking candidates, it's not having any impact on his favorability here. I'm just shaking my head. Sorry, Dave. Uh, do, do you think <laughs> yeah, that, it's hard to see that on I, radio. I, I just I couldn't hide it. Do you think the evidence from these hearings happening right now could change their minds about the election results? Uh, well, you, you know, you you, uh, you you hope people pay attention to what is coming out. Um, but but unfortunately, we're kind of in a as we all know, I mean, we are so polarized in this country. And I think, you know, if people have sort of a baked in uh, belief system about someone, it, it's really hard to penetrate that. It's almost like trying to chip away at granite. And that that's kind of what my sense is of, of some of the Republicans we spoke with that uh, in, in this poll, that they are they are committed to Trump come hell or high water. I want to zoom out just a bit here, Dave. Trump, Trump's grip on the Republican Party that's come under question, right? Are we seeing a split happening at all among voters and leaders here in Illinois? 
Well, I, I think, you know, there's still in Illinois, just as is the case across the country, there are still kind of the never Trump people in Illinois and, and, and then the, the people who are pro-Trump no matter what. And, and, and that, that split, I think, was pretty evident in the poll based on, um, you know, based on what we saw kind of with the, the results in the, in the gubernatorial um, part of this, where, you know, Richard Irvin, the Aurora, Aurora mayor, uh, being so far behind uh, Darren Bailey, who is more of a Trump-aligned kind of candidate, mm-hmm. uh, that that I think kind of embodies this idea of a rift in the party, and and really the 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 problem for mainstream establishment Republicans is that they seem seem to it seems to be like their influence is gradually waning here, and and we'll have to wait until June 28th to see how this election breaks. But if these numbers hold, it's more proof of that. Yeah, talk more about how. These Illinois Republicans view President Biden. Well, I mean, I, I don't think there's a you know great surprise uh, in terms of where they're at on Biden. I mean, you know, overwhelmingly, these uh, you know they believe that he's responsible for for pretty much everything that's going going wrong in America right now, uh, from inflation to everything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the the, the they, and, you know some of the people that we talked to who took this poll believe that. Um, you know, he Biden was not elected legitimately, as we mentioned earlier, and that he's responsible for inflation and for just everything, as I said, that's going wrong here. So yeah. uh, he he's he's not high on anybody's list in this poll. Those answering the poll also said that the largest group victimized by racism and by bigotry is white people. Tell us more about that. Well, I mean, I, you know, when I first saw that result, I, I kind of I, I had the same sort of shaking my head kind of thing that you just had. Like, ha- how is that possible? Mm-hmm. But what what I think it reflects, uh, you know, roughly a third of, of uh, the respondents in the poll identified whites as the as the main people suffering from from racism and bigotry. And I think where that comes from is, you know, you've seen this narrative that it's sort of a white grievance ideology that Trump championed when he was in the White House. And we've heard kind of built in, woven into the, you know, the the the, the platform, I guess, of the of the, the GOP nationally about, you know, this uh, critical race theory and replacement theory and those kinds of things where, where whites are just, you know, to this way of thinking are on the, you know, on the on the uh, way out. And and so that that was a, a shocker to me because I, mm-hmm. I just don't. It, it's hard for me to fathom how, uh, you know, that that, that white people are are in, in any way discriminated against to the tune that we've seen, you know, other, other groups here. It just, you know, but th- yeah. this is the way the Illinois Republican primary voter or a share of them anyway, seems to think. Yeah. Well, back to this primary later this month, Trump's mostly stayed out of Illinois politics, right? Since leaving the white house, but how much influence do you think he's going to have on this election coming well, up? You know, Sasha, I mean, I think what we're looking for is whether he, he wades into the gubernatorial primary here and, and possibly endorses Darren Bailey. The the numbers, you know, it almost sort of fits into the Trump playbook, where if he sees a candidate that, that might align with him ideologically on things, if, he, if that person is up in the polls, that, you know, maybe it's a, a thing that he would wade into and then later take credit for the, the person winning. I think, you know, that's something to look for here between now and June 28th, this, this Trump put out a statement in support of, a, of someone like Darren Bailey or, mm-hmm. or come to Illinois to do that. He's also gotten involved in a downstate congressional race uh, and, and formally endorsed downstate Congresswoman Mary Miller. And she's in a, in a pretty pitched 
uh, Republican primary battle against Rodney Davis, who is also an incumbent Republican. That is WBEZ state politics reporter Dave McKinney. Interesting stuff, Dave. Thank you. That's all for today's Reset. We'll be following the January 6th congressional hearings very closely. So stick with this podcast to get the latest. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. We'll meet again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.